please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 12. Our next few times together, we'll be looking at Peter's arrest and deliverance. Tonight, we want to begin by looking at verses 1 through 5. If you would again listen to the Lord's word as I read it. Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending, after the Passover, to bring him out before the people. So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. If you'll bow with me, we'll ask the Lord's blessing. Again, Lord, we thank you for this evening, and thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for these splendid hymns that we get to sing to you how they remind us of who you are, of the glory that you are owed, and of um, the hope that we have, that even in troubled days that we hear about every day, we know, Lord, that your hand is upon your people, and you will not abandon us to, uh, to your enemies. We ask, Father, that you would embolden and encourage our hearts tonight as we sit under your word, and that, Father, you would... Um, strengthen us and strengthen the faith that you have given to us and that you will cause us to have a deepening knowledge of who you are and of your call upon our lives in this world. Give us uh, eyes to see clearly now and bless this servant and bless these your people. I do humbly ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll tell you this, um, chapter 12, as we go into it, uh, and our, between this and our, our Sunday school classes in the morning, it, it seems to be a, a good pairing of what is taking place. This past Thursday, my wife and I were standing on the corner of 2nd and Main Street. And you know, most of you know, we've been involved in the 40 Days for Life. So we go out there and we pray. We stand there generally silent, um, maybe conversing among ourselves some. We pray, we hold signs. And the signs, um, they, they are meant to keep an awareness of uh, really the heinousness of abortion, the, 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 the people who suffer, the women who suffer after the fact, the fact that we are killing off a generation of people. It's, it's not, and they've never pushed, you know, get into fights and be shameful. You're supposed to be peaceful and just be quiet and quietly pray. And, and this is what we have been doing. Again, the signs are not antagonistic. Uh, rather, they are compassionate. They offer hope, extend the message of forgiveness, give a phone number to call if someone is struggling with a pregnancy they were not expecting. It's peaceful, though, but and, and it is prayerful. And many people demonstrate support while we're out there. There are many people who drive by, and they honk, and they wave. Uh, one man this past week came by with giant cups of hot chocolate for us, and he actually handed them to us in a cup and didn't throw it at us. <laughs> that was a joke. Um, he brought us hot chocolate, and it was very sweet. Uh, others, on the other hand, uh, one man uh, driving by in a blue truck just looked at us and just shook his head like, and if you could put words to, the, to his affect, it was idiots. You know, um, and others make obscene gestures, but it's what we expect, and so we don't stand out there uh, really looking for one or the other. It's just what is. This past Thursday, however, we met with more than just disapproval. 
Um, and it was really driven home to me the depth and gave a much better sense of the extent of the spiritual battle in which we are engaged as Christians, uh, as Christians living in a nation that is post-Christian. A woman pulled up, you know, we stand there on the road and there's that parking lane that's right between us. This lady pulled up into the parking lane right in front of us, rolled her window down, made an obscene gesture. I mean, she stopped her car. She made the gesture. And it was more than the gesture gesture she made. It was the hatred in her eyes uh, that, that said a thousand things to us. It was clear from her look, which is now emblazoned on my mind, that this was more than mere annoyance. It and, and some other things that occurred this past week reminded me that Satan and this world are truly no friends of truth, of goodness, or of beauty. And as we've read in John 15 tonight, they do not love the Lord Jesus, and they do not love his people. Dare I say it? They hate them. They hate the Lord, and they hate the Lord's people. The Christian, in his devotion to Christ and his obedience to the Lord, have not been tolerated by the world, nor are they tolerated by the world today. And Paul said to uh, Timothy in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And as we drift further away from the truth, God's truth, and an awareness of him and our culture uh, fades, we should expect, as a church and as Christians, we should expect a greater manifestation of hatred poured out upon the church. If we are truly devoted to obeying the Lord Jesus, uh, we can expect this. And, and I, I don't think this is rocket science. I think this is just good old-fashioned logic. As the, as the awareness of God fades, of the Lord, of his word fades from the public conscience, um, I think we can expect that any church, any Christian who desires to live godly will most certainly endure and be exposed to persecution. On the other side, if, if we were to abandon the gospel, the bloody sacrifice of Jesus Christ, if we were to say that all kinds of people are welcome regardless of their sin, and of course all people are welcome, but we have to repent of our sin. This is what the Lord calls us to. Um, but if we were to just say, well, you can be a homosexual, and, and of course God's, God's good with this, or you can be a, a drunk, you can be a drug addict, these are all fine things. If we took that attitude and said, all are welcome regardless of how you, you know, if we welcomed all these people, of course, we would be embraced and loved and celebrated in the culture. Because we don't, and because we won't, we can expect that persecution will come. Here now, Luke has recorded for the church the account of a second wave of persecution that has come to the church. This time, however, it is not coming from the religious leaders in Israel, but rather from the government, from Herod the king. And tonight, as we are looking at these verses, or tonight we'll look at these verses, uh, verses 1 through 5. In a couple of weeks' time, we will read of the conclusion, verses 6 through 19. It is good for us to have this passage. As it encourages us how to prepare and how to respond and how we should respond to the coming, coming here, persecution 
uh, of the church. And next Sunday morning in Sunday school, we will be looking at a follow-up to this morning's lesson. Uh, this morning, it was acknowledged that this is where we are, and then next Sunday morning, we're looking at this is where we need to go. This is what we need to do. This is what we need to focus on for the days coming. And I don't, I don't think I'm being scary. I don't think I'm being an alarmist when I say these things. We just see that, like the like, one one reformer spoke about this. He said, you know, persecution in the church is like the weather during April. You'll get a snowstorm, and then you'll get a sunny, warm day, and everything's pleasant. And then another snowstorm comes and drops two feet of snow on you. He says, this is the way it is with persecution in the church. We have times of peace, and then we have times of persecution. Um, I think we can thank the Lord for the years and decades of peace, relative peace the church has had in this country, but I don't see it going, uh, continuing in that direction, barring the Lord sending uh, an awakening to this land. I think, I think it's to be expected uh, that difficult days are going to be upon the church. So this passage is here to encourage us. Listen to verse 1. Here Luke gives us background to what is to follow here in the rest of chapter 12. He says, Now about that time Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. Again, this is the historic background of this second wave. Who was this king who did this? And again, when did he do it? And he says, it's Now about that time. That is, it's, it's about the same time that Barnabas and Paul were sent to Jerusalem by the church in Antioch with the aid for those who would be suffering from the famine. So it is about this time, about that time in the history of the church, that Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. This is King Herod Agrippa I. Um, everyone was named Herod, so you. <laughs> so we're going to make a differentiation and call him Agrippa, uh, or Agrippa the first. Here he was the son of Aristobulus and the grandson of Herod the Great, and of Miriam, a Jewess. Agrippa was sent to Rome after his father had been executed in 7 B.C. Uh, Agrippa was educated in Rome and had befriended a man named Gaius, who later would be known as Caligula. Uh, Caligula became emperor in 37 AD. This emperor proclaimed Herod Agrippa king over Iturea, Trachonitis, and Abilene, uh, the tetrarchs east of Galilee. Later, however, Agrippa would also control Galilee and Perea, and after that, Judea and Samaria. Again, one commentator said, King Herod Agrippa ruled over territories that equaled those of his grandfather, Herod the Great. So he's a very powerful man. He's a very powerful king. In fact, it's a, it's a fantastic chapter, and I can't wait to get to the part where the angel strikes him and he's eaten with worms. Because you can't mock God, right? That's the end of the story. You can't mock God and get away with it. So it's, it's, a, it's actually a tremendous hope for people. Agrippa, like many politicians today, exploited his heritage. As mentioned, his grandmother was a Jewess, a fact that he would exploit to his own benefit. Again, one commentator noted, he made known that he enjoyed living in Jerusalem. Now, this is, this is Agrippa. He, he made known to everyone that he loved living in Jerusalem. While there, he scrupulously observed Jewish law and tradition. Daily, he offered sacrifices at the temple. During the Feast of Tabernacles, the Jewish authorities gave him 
the honor of reading publicly a passage from the law. He did so in harmony with the Mosaic law that the king read a copy of the law all the days of his life. In short, the Jews accepted King Herod Agrippa as one of their number. Josephus says that Agrippa was mild and liberal, but he was an ambitious prince. And here we're told by Luke that he laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. He laid hands on them, meaning he arrested some who were part of the church. The question is why? What was the purpose for his mistreating them, for his oppressing them and persecuting them? Why would he do this? Friends, it is, a self, uh, it is self-serving to be sure. There's no mention of any crime or of, or of any rebellion on the part of the Christians. What he's doing is, is he's doing what politicians do. He's currying favor with the Jews who made up the largest contingency in Jerusalem. This is what we see politicians do. They decide to hop on a bandwagon and say, they're the problem, we need to deal with them, and they appease the loudest and squeakiest wheels. There's nothing new under the sun. Um, so they, they, they strive uh, to placate the loudest voices, keeping them happy, makes his life peaceful, and it ends up serving his goals. It wins over those who have doubted his abilities, and it strives to bring about a greater unanimity uh, among uh, the people. Right. So a good king is one who can control the people. He can control them by tossing them a bone periodically. Um, and, and, and in case you're wondering about this very thing, this sadly, I mean, we heard about uh, Nancy Pelosi's husband being attacked uh, with a hammer. And by all accounts, this man was a was kind of a crazy man. He came from a place that had uh, signs that are associated with very left-leaning organizations, and yet they wasted no time in saying this was a Republican thing. I think John even reported someone blamed Donald Trump. Um, for this this kind of thing. Now, Democrat or not, notice this is what the politicians do, though. They will find something, never let a good tragedy go to waste. Right? This is what we hear people say. I think it was uh, Rahm Emanuel said this in, from Chicago. Never let a good catastrophe go to waste. We, we need to, to play this up. And we see that they have done this in regard to Mr. Pelosi. The problem, friends, with with Herod doing this with these Christians, very fundamentally, it's just an unjust treatment. Those in authority have an obligation before God to do what is right. You want to write your politicians, you want to say something to them, remind them that they will give an account to the Lord. That's what they need to be reminded of, that they will give an account to the Lord, and they need to promote lawfulness. And if there are laws in the books that are wrong, they need to amend those laws so that they're right. Listen to what Paul would say in Romans 13. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same, for it is a minister of God to you for good. This is the role of government. The question is, what is good? Is it what men call good? Um, and, and let me just ask you this. Very, very common sense things. Ladies, would you rather have a bouquet of dead flowers or alive flowers? Which would you rather have? Men, would you rather eat a sandwich with mold or one without mold? I'm, I'm, I'm partial to that as well. I'd rather have it without. Um, 
the Christian, the Bible, they promote life. The Bible promotes life, not just spiritual life, but also physical life, everything in it. John, you brought it up this morning in Sunday school. God says, be fruitful, multiply, take dominion, make things thrive. And what is the opposite voice? Don't take dominion, be subservient to creation, stop having babies, you're creating too much carbon. This is the kind of thing that's going on. It's a spiritual battle. But if you look at the basis of it and you look at the fundamentals, what do Christians bring to a society? I remember when, when, when Calvin was in, in France, he dedicates his, his institutes to the king of France. And he's pointing out, no, 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 you really want Christians in your empire. You want Christians in your country because they will be a blessing. And here, what I'm writing, it's not rebellion. What I'm doing is, is we're instructing the church. A good, a faithful Christian, an obedient Christian is a blessing to a nation. Who wouldn't want people who are a blessing? Does this seem like rocket science to you? Would you rather have death or would you rather have life? Would you rather have chaos or would you rather have order? Would you rather have strife or would you rather have peace? You want peace. You want life. You want order. This is what the Christian, and if you read the scriptures, again, read all of the instruction that, that the apostles, as they write these letters, as they're instructing the church, what kinds of things do they tell the Christians? Be excellent citizens. Do what is right and honorable in the sight of people. You know, honor the king. They, they say all of these wonderful, salutary, life-giving principles. And what is Herod doing with these life-bringing people to a culture? Persecutes them. In what universe does that make sense? I understand that not everyone outside the church walls is a Christian. I understand that. But honestly, would you want to eat a moldy sandwich? Not even a pagan thinks a moldy sandwich is a good thing. No pagan woman I know would ever say, please give me those stinky, soggy bouquets that they throw out in the garbage behind Safeway. No one would say that. Truly, we value life, except when we don't. And if we don't, what does that tell you about the condition that has come over our people? When a government has policies, when a government passes laws, when a government is persecuting people who promote life and say, stop it. That's evil. That's what we see occurring. This is a demonic thing that is occurring under Herod. Uh, Satan came to deceive and to murder. And with him is death, and with him is disorder, and with him is chaos. Think of the, the demons, and all the people who are demon-possessed. Any one of them ever become, as recorded in Scripture, any one of them ever become better being possessed by a demon? Oh, my son has learned to spell. He can do math. Oh, he's looking after his little sister. You never see anything like this. 
They're throwing themselves in the fires. They're, they're lame. They're deaf. They're moot. They're all of these sorts of things. That's what Satan brings. He brings death and destruction. Our federal government, our White House, the Democratic Party, and here, Herod, they're promoting death. And he laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. It's demonic. And yet this is what we find Herod Agrippa doing. And again, however, we ought not to be surprised for what did Jesus say? Remember the word I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. That's what the Lord said. I'm starting to listen to these verses more closely in these recent, these recent years. Because you see, it, it's going on. And I scratch my head. I say, how can this be? Now, we do not know all upon whom he laid hands. We just are told some. But we do know two in particular that he laid hands upon. Luke continues to record in uh, verses 2 through 4. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. Again, he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. This is James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the one, the, the two who are known as the sons of thunder. This uh, James should not be confused with James the just, the half-brother of the Lord, who was thrown from the pinnacle of the temple and hit in the head with a club, all because he confessed Christ. Okay, This is uh, James, the brother of John, one of the twelve apostles, who was killed with a sword, and they think probably decapitated. The king, said one commentator, apparently acted in collusion with the Sanhedrin, which served as a court of law. And again, according to another commentator, um, who I had never made this connection before, and I appreciated this insight, in Deuteronomy 13, 6 through 18, uh, the scripture there instructs, if someone entices a Jew to engage in idolatry, he must be put to death by stoning. But if such a person persuades a whole city to serve other gods, then he must be killed with a sword. In the eyes of Herod Agrippa, James had led the city of Jerusalem astray. Of course, the commentator points out, actually, they should have put a whole bunch of people to death with the sword because many people in Jerusalem had, by this time, believed in Jesus Christ. So you can see they, did, they had a legal proceeding. The Sanhedrin are involved. We've convicted James of turning people towards a foreign god. Of course, it wasn't. It was the, actually, if you remember Stephen's defense, he's actually pointing out Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. You've seen the Father, you've seen him. And so Stephen and, and James, these men were not leading people away from God. They were actually leading uh, them to the true God of the scriptures. So you can do things legally and still be quite immoral in what has gone on. Again, notice this is what goes on in our day. We use the courts and we use laws to punish good. What a way to discourage and oppress the church. Take one of its most prominent leaders, 
and kill them. This will discourage and this will intimidate Christians, dissuading them from following Christ, or at least keeping them from speaking out. Uh, in this way, Herod could win favor with the Jews, who no doubt despise the Christians more now for having welcomed the Gentiles. And, and friends, we, we, we should keep this in mind, that the day may come when they take away your elders and they take away your pastor. And what do you do? This is what I would expect. I would expect Charlie to step up and bring the word. I would expect Levon to step up and bring the word and say, we need to gather. I would expect Bill or Tim or Den, because the elders are going to be in jail. <laughs> That's why I didn't name you men. We stand up. We, we just go, okay. Okay, this is what they've done. Let's not let it be a setback. Let's gather for prayer, and let's, let's care for the body of Christ. This is what we do in times of persecution. And yet, the intent, I believe, of, 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 of putting to death James and then of arresting Peter is meant, they, it's got to be. They're the two of the most, right? What was the inner circle? Peter, James, and John. So we, we attack these men, we remove them, we kill them, we silence them, now they're going to run away, right? The, the, the sheep will scatter if there's no shepherd. What's the problem with this mindset? There's still a shepherd. There's still a shepherd over the church. It's the Lord Jesus. And he raises up men, and he gives gifts to men, and then he calls men to care. If something like this were to happen, you should never be silent. This is not the government's job to say you can't meet and you can't preach and you we don't want you talking in this name you set your face against the government and in godly defiance you say no we will meet and we will preach and we will pray and we will pray for those men who are locked away in prison that they get out soon that's what you do but I'm convinced that this is exactly what Herod is doing he's he's punishing the leaders to try to keep the church uh, quashed. It's a beautiful uh, testimony here of his death. Um, Eusebius wrote concerning James, it says, it appears that the guard who brought him into court was so moved when he saw him testify, James apparently testifies, and that he, he too confessed that he was a Christian, the guard. So they were both taken away together, and on the way he asked James to forgive him. James thought for a moment, then he said, I wish you peace, and gave him a kiss. So both, says Eusebius, uh, both were beheaded at the same time. That's what uh, historians tell us about James. James, and he made this good confession before the Sanhedrin. The guard saw, the guard was converted, and the guard and James went to their death, um, forgiving and being a blessing. So Herod had James uh, put to death with a sword, decapitated. When he saw, Luke continues, when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Again, Luke speaks here to Herod's motivation. It was not, as was said a bit ago, it was not to rule justly in any sort of fear of God, which all politicians ought to do. Rather, he saw that it pleased the Jews. It curried favor with the Jews. The attitude 
that my good comes from men and not from God is a reprehensible attitude, and no one should have that. Peter, too, was arrested, pointing out that he was probably selected as the most obvious and best known of our Lord's disciples. And it was during the days of unleavened bread. In the New Testament times, the Feast of Unleavened Bread had merged with the Passover. It was a week-long celebration during the end of March and the beginning of April, and it was commemorating, recall, the deliverance of the Jewish people out of Egypt. It would seem an excellent time to make an example of Peter with so many zealous Jews visiting this city, right? Never waste a good opportunity <laughs> for exposure. Peter was seized. He was put into a prison cell under maximum security. Uh, um, there were four squads of soldiers who would guard him around the clock. Six, this is 16 soldiers used to guard one man, two in his cell, two outside the cell, rotating uh, every six hours. So round-the-clock security. Remember, the last time Peter was being held in jail with the apostles, they all got out of jail. And the attitude is probably, we're not going to let that happen again. So they put 16 men on one man. Herod will have him held in prison until the Passover week is over, right? <laughs> it's ironic. Why risk uh, ruining a good religious observance, celebrating deliverance and new life with a trial and execution of an apostle who's proclaiming deliverance and new life? It, it's, it's ironic, isn't it? Perhaps he's waiting, Herod is waiting until it was over because people's sensitivities would have been heightened or they would be distracted from what Herod was doing, thus not getting as much out of his charade. This was truly a terrible thing which occurred, the death of James and now the imprisonment of Peter, all very politically expedient. Get the masses to love and embrace you by portraying the innocent and godly as enemies of the state. Use their pains for your prophet. Does that sound familiar, roughly? Right? Make an example of a, of a godly man who bakes cakes for a living. Make an example of a woman who's a florist. Make an example of a graphic designer. You know, make, oh, look at these hateful, hateful people. And nobody bothers to check, to verify, which is not true of any of these men. I remember reading about the cake decorator. He says, I've never denied anyone a cake, but when they want me to make a cake to celebrate a homosexual union, when there are thousands, hundreds of bakers in this area, and they could go to them, and he goes, I've never denied selling a cake. I've never not made a cake, but they want me to celebrate, make a cake, do this artwork to celebrate a homosexual union. I, I can't in good conscience do it. He's a hater. And then we make a platform. Look at this hater over here. I'm not. Right? And this is what, this is how Satan works. This is how he works. And this is how politics oftentimes works. And sadly, you know what Christians do? We bless instead of curse. We pray for, um, and we should. These are the things the Lord is, but it makes us also an easy target. And it makes us prone to endure hardship. What do we do? at times like this. We're going to look at verse 5 uh, and wrap this up here in just a moment. But notice here what, what Luke says. So Peter was kept in the prison. You know, Herod's going to hold on to him and make a spectacle out of him after the Passover. Everyone's in town and their minds now can be focused on this. 
Uh, Peter was kept in the, in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. This is the path forward, and I want to touch on this next week in Sunday school, but also in two weeks' time, we will see what the Lord did. I want you to notice several things. First of all, God does not have the same plan for all his saints. James was arrested, and he was murdered unjustly. The decrees of God are a mysterious thing. The other is arrested to be murdered unjustly, but as we will see, he is rescued. Notice that James is put to death, and he's never replaced again. When Judas went out and hanged himself, Judas was replaced with Matthias. When, when James is put to death, he's never replaced. And you say, why James, and why not Peter? I don't know. I don't know. But God knows. Secondly, while believers may be locked up and kept from going about, may be put in prison cells and placed under maximum security, this does not stop the word of God. And this, this we should be very um, encouraged by. Paul was under house arrest uh, for a long time. And he says in 2 Timothy 2, the word of God is not imprisoned. Nor do prison bars keep the Lord's people, nor can it keep us from praying, nor our prayers from being heard by the Lord. John Bunyan, and we said this during our series in Esther, uh, you can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. One of the greatest tools the church has been entrusted with um, is with the gift of prayer. To be able to seek through Jesus Christ with the aid of the Holy Spirit and to approach the throne of grace and to let our concerns be made known to the great King over heaven and earth. I don't think this can be stressed enough emphasized enough the importance of prayer you know I'm a firm believer that Christians ought to be involved in, in the marketplace we ought to be involved in politics we ought to be involved in the civil sphere but you know what I've noticed this and, and among many conservatives well they like keeping their money and they believe in promoting jobs and they believe in, in saving life because it's a common sense thing who kills <laughs> we don't do these things what I've noticed however is that many conservatives don't truly believe in the Lord Jesus and they don't believe in the power and the privilege of prayer they just don't because they're not born again and so if we pursue all these things but we neglect to pray and you see and this is a special privilege the church has been given and we see that it's exercised by the Lord's people in the past. And we will see that the Lord and his sovereignty heard their prayers, um, foreordained their prayers, that Peter should be released. This is an encouragement to us. For those of us who feel like, oh, the world is going to you know where in a handbasket. There's nothing I can do. Don't ever think that. Don't ever think there's nothing we can do because we can. And our greatest, our greatest tools, our greatest blessings are the word of God and prayer. And, and that was what Peter or Paul would keep bringing us back to. The, uh, 
the necessity of prayer. Again, it's like that crazy heater in my room which didn't feel all that hot. And people said, oh, it's not working. It's not delivering fast enough. It's not doing this. And I'm like, you just, you don't know. What we have recorded for us is the example of the church who prayed and the Lord answered their prayers. Do you want to conquer you want to conquer the evil in this world? Then get on your knees and make fervent, ardent, heart-impassioned prayer to our God who hears in heaven. And he hears us. And we should pray. This is what is before us. We are not helpless. They prayed. And we will see that the Lord answered these prayers, and he does so today because he has not changed. But what, where we have come is it's, it's not convenient to pray. It's not easy, and it isn't. I believe prayer is probably one of the hardest things we do. I can tell you, I can think of nothing until I go to pray, and then everything, every thought that has ever occurred in the universe comes flying past the gray matter between my ears, and I have the most difficult time of praying until I can pray out loud or I can pray with others and I can hear myself actually try to keep the train on track. Prayer is one of the most difficult things and yet it's the very thing that we are urged and encouraged, given example, to wrestle with the Lord. Wrestle with the Lord and make your request known to the Lord. This is the best thing we can do and this is the example given to us in the scripture. So we will pick up here um, in two weeks time. Don't let your heart be discouraged. We have troubles in this world. What does Jesus say? Take heart. I've overcome the world. And that's the truth. Let's pray. Again, O oh Lord, we thank you for your word and thank you for this sweet passage, um, a sobering passage, um, where we see that, our, that godly men suffer for being godly. They suffer, Lord, for loving and for obeying, for following Jesus Christ, for being concerned enough to speak the truth and love to people, and they suffered. James and this uh, guard who were put to death, Peter who was arrested, men who feared you, lovely men, godly men, wise men, uh, bold men, um, and yet they suffered, and yet it wasn't because you withdrew your love, but it was granted to them this privilege in order to suffer for the Lord Jesus. Well, Father, we pray that we would have that attitude in ourselves, which would consider it a blessing uh, to suffer, to be granted to us to suffer for the Lord Jesus, and that we would see that it is truly a blessing because your spirit resides upon us. Father, we don't pretend and we don't come um, asking for persecution, but acknowledging and uh, anticipating that it is coming and so we pray, Father, that we will not be afraid. For one, we know that you will be with us. And two, we know, Lord, that you're not ashamed of those who are not ashamed of you. We ask that we would not be ashamed of you, that we would enjoy or endure, rather, the suffering that comes to us, and that we would join in the suffering uh, for the sake of Christ and for the sake of those who have yet to come to salvation. Uh, we pray that you would open doors for your gospel. I pray, Lord, that you would... Grant to us wisdom to know when to speak and what to say when those opportunities come. And Father, we thank you that you are always with us, and we thank you that you are so patient with us. 
that we have the examples of people who were at times afraid and ran away. But we have often done this too. But we pray that we would become more consumed with the glory of Christ and to see his name lifted up and less concerned about our own well-being. I do ask that your blessing now be upon us as we go into this week. We pray that your word would continue to minister to us as we meditate and think on these things. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.